Bokotov, good morning everyone. Welcome to our Aliyah day. Glad you're with me this morning. An Aliyah day keeps the Yetzirah away. We haven't reminded ourselves about that in some time, so I thought I would mention it. Baruch Hashem. Hope that everybody's having a great morning so far. This is the fifth Aliyah of uh, Parashah Shemini. The fifth, fifth Aliyah is kind of uh, short. I think we... Um, uh, it's towards the end of the issue, this incident of uh, Nadav and Avihu. We've had a lot of great information so far, great understanding, great learning from this uh, parasha. So today we're going to get into the fifth aliyah, um, but really more so the uh, sixth aliyah, or at least part of the sixth aliyah, because we transition from this inauguration of the tabernacle, uh, into a discussion of Kashrut. And we're going to revisit this peculiar situation because if you really put the pieces of the puzzle together, we're talking about the inauguration of the tabernacle, the fire of God coming down, igniting the altar, the glory of Hashem filling the tabernacle, all of this hyper amazing religious, dynamic, spiritual, uh, nuclear bomb going off. And then we transition from that to talking about what's for dinner. And it, it's one, I, I love it because it is, it flies in the face of conventional false religious theology, which is that what we're eating and what we should worry about, whether we should go get this type of uh, food or that type of food, is so basic. That, that, that type of thing is so menial. It's so legalistic. God doesn't even care. And only to find out that the chapter that deals with Kashrut is in the parasha and next to the chapter that deals with God's presence and his forgiveness, and his restoration, and his glory, and his, and his fire, which only serves to show that what we, in our false religious philosophies, consider important, God doesn't consider all that important. The most important thing to God is what we're eating. And we're going to learn why as we study today, because it's deeply spiritual and we don't uh, realize it. So let's go ahead and begin reading. We'll go ahead and read the uh, fifth Aliyah because, as I said, it's not this, it's just a few verses. And then we'll get into Capiculo Onse, the chapter 11 of the uh, book of Vaikrat. Now, if you have an article Chumash, and you got to say Chumash, we have an article Chumash, we are on page 595. And chapter 10. Verse 16, it says, Moses inquired ins insistently about the he go to the sea off, uh, sin offering, for behold, it had been burned. <clears throat> and he was wrathful with Eleazar and Ithamar, Aaron's remaining son, saying, Why did you not eat the sin offering in the place of holiness? For it's most holy. And he gave it to you to gain forgiveness for the sins of the assembly and to atone before Shem. Behold, its blood was not brought into the sanctuary within. You should have eaten it in the holy as I have commanded. Aaron spoke to Moses, what, it, what 
Uh, excuse me. Was it they who this day offered their sin offering and their elevation offering before Adonai? Now that such thing befell me, were I to eat this day's sin offering, would Adonai approve? And Moshe heard and he approved. So he accepted Aaron's ar- argument that, listen, would it be right for me to enjoy such a holy offering on a day that has brought me such calamity? Uh, so basically he's in mourning. And so Moshe acquiesces. So that concludes our... Torah lesson about the inauguration of the temple, as I said earlier. And now we transition, from, we go from that, turning on a proverbial dime, into chapter 11. This is one of the two chapters that certain theologies say the Messiah just erased, just deleted it, you know, he selected it, control, alt, delete, and it's gone. Actually, control out delete response the computer. What I mean is that he deleted this whole chapter, and uh, so we have we we have a, a religious philosophy that, that exists that the Mashiach uh, actually erased scripture, and then we get mad when people want to take the Ten Commandments out of the courthouse. I'm trying to understand that, so we're okay if we can delete chapter eleven out of the book of Leviticus, but we're mad if you take the Ten Commandment picture out of the out of the courthouse. I'm just just say law on that for a moment. All right. Um chapter eleven, verse one. Hashem spoke to Moses and to Aaron, saying to them, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, These are the creatures that you may eat from among all the animals that are upon the earth. By the way, we deleted the fourth commandment out of that picture anyway, so now it's really the nine commandments. So we're we're deleting what we want to keep. You're right? I know. I know. Anything. uh, Anyway, uh, verse 3. Everything among the animals that has a split hoof, which is completely separated into double hooves, and that brings up the cud, that one you may eat. So, you cannot eat a donkey, and the donkey says, praise God, but you can have um, uh, a cow, you can have elk, deer, uh, lamb, goat. You cannot have a pig. A pig has a split hoof, but it does not chew the cud. It chews everything else. Verse 4, but this is what you shall not eat from among those who bring up their cud or that have split hooves. The camel, for it brings up its cud, but its hoof is not split. It is unclean to you. And the harax, for it brings up its cud, but its hoof is not split. It is unclean for you. And the pig, for its hoof is split and its hoof is completely separated, but it does not chew its cud. It is unclean to you. You shall not eat of their flesh, nor shall you touch their carcass. They are unclean to you. This may you eat from everything that is in the water, or as they say in Jamaica, wata. Everything that has fins and scales in the wata, in the seas and in the streams, those you may eat. So it's very easy for fish. If it has fins and scales, you can eat it. If it does not have both, it has to have both. So if it has scales, but no fins, it's no good. If it has fins, but no scales, no good. It has to have fins and scales. Verse 10, And everything that does not have fins and scales in the seas and in the streams, from all the teams in the water, and from all living creatures in the water, they are an abomination to you. Now, 
This, the, with this word abomination is interesting because it's shekets, and it literally means idolatry. It, the root of it actually means idolatry. So abomination is akin to idolatry. This word is used also in connection with homosexuality. So there are people out there who would say that uh, homosexuality is an abomination. I would agree. What they don't realize is that what they had for dinner last night is the same abomination that the scripture used to talk about homosexuality. Why? Because homosexuality at its root is idolatry. And eating an unkosher meal at its root is idolatry. They are related. So if we're going to condemn homosexuality as an abomination, and we should, we should also be careful about other things that are also an abomination to include our menu. And I didn't make that up. This actually comes from Scripture. So if Scripture is our standard, now if Scripture is not our standard, then obviously all bets are off and why, why bother? But that's where we are. So you're not allowed to have crabs. By the way, did you realize that crabs are part of the spider family? Yes, they are. Not allowed to have um, lobster. I, I went blank there for a second. Lobster are part of the roach family. So you're welcome. Verse 11, and they shall remain an abomination to you, and you shall eat, not eat their flesh, and, and you shall abominate their carcass. Everything that does not have fins and scales in the water, it is an abomination to you. That word abomination gets used a lot here, doesn't it? Hmm. Verse 13, these shall you abominate from among the birds. The birds, they may not be eaten. They are an abomination. The Nesher, the Peres, the Osnia, the Da'a, the Aya, according to its kind. Every Orev, according to its kind. The Bas Yana, the Kamos, the Shachaf, and the Nets, according to its kind. The Kos, the Shalach, the, Shan, the Yashu, Yashuf. Obviously, these are all uh, definitions you have to look up. The Tenshem, the Kaas, the Racham, the Kasida, the Anaf, according to its kind, the Dufis, and the Atalef. Uh, it's probably just easiest to say that we can have chicken, and we can have turkey, and you can have duck, and you can have pheasant, and you can have quail, and you can have uh, dove, and you can have uh, pigeon, or as we like to say in France, pigeon. Um, what else? I feel like I'm leaving something out. But anyway, those are the main things. And somebody asked me one time, people have asked me on numerous occasions, is duck kosher? I'm not really quite sure why people wonder about that, but it is absolutely kosher. You can buy uh, kosher certified duck. In fact, they have it um, at Kosher Palette now, but I've also purchased it at Tom Thumb. I happen to like a duck, and I don't buy it very often, but um, I don't buy it very often, but when I do, I buy kosher. <laughs> Verse 20, every flying teeming creature that works on four legs is an abomination to you. So not allowed to eat bugs. You're welcome. Only this may you eat from among all flying teeming creatures that walk on the four legs. One that has jumping legs above its legs with which to spring upon the earth. You may eat these from among them. So locusts, you can have locusts if you care to. I've never had locusts. Um... I'm not opposed to trying it, but I've never had it. 
the Arbea according to its kind, the Solomon according to its kind, the Hargol according to its kind, and the Hagav according to its kind. Every flying teeming thing that has four legs, it's an abomination to you. So no chocolate-covered ants. I know y'all are disappointed, but you can't have it. You become contaminated through the following. Anyone who touches their carcass becomes contaminated until evening. Anyone who carries their carcass shall immerse his clothing and be contaminated till evening. Every animal that has split hooves that are not completely split or does not chew its cud, they are contaminated to you. Whoever touches them becomes contaminated. And everyone that walks on its paws among all the animals that walks on four legs, they are contaminated to you. Whoever touches their carcass shall be contaminated until evening. So you can't eat anything that has paws. So if you're accustomed to having uh, possum stew, well, you got to cut that out. No, no more possum stew. No more raccoon, no more, uh, you know, guinea pig uh, roast. So it says, one who carries their carcass shall immerse his clothing and be contaminated until evening. They are contaminated to you. These are the cont- contaminated ones that you among the teeming animals that teem upon the earth. The choled, the achbar, the zav, according to its kind, the anak, the kloach, the letach, and the chomet, the tishemes. Only these are contaminated to you among all the teeming animals. Anyone who touches them, when they are dead, shall be contaminated until evening. And when they are dead, and anything upon which part of them fall shall become contaminated, whether it's wooden utensil, a garment, a leather, or sackcloth, any utensil with which work is done shall be brought into the water, remain contaminated until evening, and then become cleansed. That is the end of the sixth aliyah. So, Kashrut, why does God care? Well, there's been many people through the years who have said Kashrut is about health, it's about this or that. We're going to get to that in a second. It's absolutely not about any of that. It's about being holy. God makes it clear at the end of this chapter that the reason, and and specifically in verse 33 and 45, as it says here, it actually mentions this in the Art School Chumash, which I'm going to read um, this commentary from the uh, Art School Chumash because it's very good. But it mentions the reason. The reason that we eat kosher is because God wants us to be holy. It's about holiness. And what we have to understand in addition to that is that when we eat kosher, and uh, well, well, let me just finish my sentence and I'll say something else about that. When we eat kosher, we are actually elevating ourselves spiritually, but we're also allowing, we're we're removing the spiritual fog from our minds. I'm just going to tell you right now that when people eat kosher, they begin to have deeper spiritual understanding and revelation. It makes them spiritually smarter. You are what you eat. And when you eat God's holy menu, you are able to comprehend deeper spiritual truths. And I have personally seen people in our synagogue who've come in and they were not eating kosher and they start eating kosher and next thing you know, they're like transformed. And you say, wow, that can food do that? Well, of course. Everything that was made was made with Torah, right? And God tells us which, which to eat and which not to eat. And so people get transformed in what they start ingesting and digesting holy food. And next thing you know, they become Zadikim. It happens all the time. 
Jewish, our rabbis rather, will tell you about this all the time. Now, there has developed over the years this concept of eating, quote, biblically kosher, unquote. To infer, or to quote Zakin uh, Rayford, to him. To imply, to infer, to insinuate that rabbinic kosher is not in fact kosher, but there is a biblical kosher, and then there is this other thing called rabbinic kosher. Um, that's nonsense. Okay, the the eating quote unquote biblically kosher is nonsense. Okay, um, it's it is not kosher eating at all. Um, and let me explain why. You're not allowed to eat food. Meat, rather, that's been strangled, right? You have to have it kosher slaughtered. So when you go to eat, quote-unquote, biblically kosher, because you're eating the hamburger, you're not eating pork, you're not eating shellfish, you're eating a hamburger at Five Guys Hamburger Place. Never mind that you have cheese on it. That's obviously not kosher, 100% not kosher. But let's suppose that you don't have cheese on it. Let's suppose it's just a regular hamburger. The lots of problems with that. You're eating biblically kosher, right? So you think that everything's fine. It's not. First of all, it's a hamburger meat, so you have no idea what fat is in that hamburger meat. Could be the forbidden fat. Number one. Number two, the cow was not kosher slaughtered. It was it was blunted in the head, which means it was for all intents and purposes strangled to death. The blood was not let out, and then you have all the other issues, of course, that goes back in the kitchen. They put your hamburger patty on the same uh, grill that they're grilling um, uh, bacon on and whatever, whatever. And so they have all those kind of issues as well, but let's just stick with the meat. Same thing with chicken. You eat biblically kosher, you go out, you buy some chicken at Walmart, you bring it home, you grill it, everything's fine, you're eating chicken, what could be wrong with that? Except for the fact that they gassed that chicken to death, they strangled it to death, that's how they killed it, which automatically made it not kosher for the beginning. So eating biblically kosher is ridiculous. The fact of the matter is, when we say rabbinically kosher, that is in fact biblically kosher. So just know that, all right? You cannot, if you're going to eat kosher, eating kosher means that you are eating certified kosher, all right? If you're just having, you know, you can say, well, I'm, I eat clean or whatever, and pe- some a lot of people start there. That's where they begin. But that's not eating kosher. I just want to make that distinction. It's very important to know that. That's not eating kosher. Um, so it says here in the commentary, and by the way, everybody would agree with that. Every Jewish person, even Reformed Jews, agree with what I just said. Um, Sometimes you might be finding yourself talking to a secular Jew or a Reformed Jew. And they eat everything. Shrimp cocktail, whatever, lamb, uh, excuse me, uh, lobster bisque, whatever. But they'll ask you, do you eat kosher? And uh, if you tell them, well, you know, I, I, yes, but I do this, they're going to tell you that's not kosher. And they don't, they, because they know, right? Anyway, I digress. It says here, at the end of the chapter, we learn that the Torah stresses that the reason for kosherus is very clear in powerful terms. By observing these laws, a Jew can pull himself up the ladder of holiness. By ignoring them, he not only contaminates himself, but he gradually builds a barrier that blocks out his comprehension of holiness. Is what I was talking about a second ago. 
By eating non-kosher, we actually build up a barrier that prevents us from grasping certain truths. So it says, Just as someone who is constantly exposed to loud music and harsh noise slowly and... uh, but surely suffers a loss of his ability to hear fine sounds and detect subtle modulations, so too the Torah informs us a Jew's consumption of non-kosher food deadens his spiritual capacity and denies him the full opportunity to become holy. And worst of all, it renders him incapable of even perceiving the loss. For this reason, Rama in Yoredeya 81.7 cautions that even small children should be prevented from eating forbidden food lest their spiritual potential be harmed. So Rashi notes a reason why various animal food is forbidden to Jews. It is the spiritual mission, he says, of the Jewish people to attach themselves to the ultimate source of spiritual life. Consequently, Jews must refrain from consuming any food that the divine intelligence knows to be an obstacle to attaining this lofty goal. In the parable of the Rabbi Tankuma, a doctor came to visit two patients. To one of them, he said, eat whatever you want. To another, he gave him a very precise and restrictive diet. Soon, the first patient died and the second recovered. The doctor explained that there was no hope for the first patient. So that's why he told him he could eat whatever he wants. But to the, to the other patient, who was basically healthy, it was important to give him a diet that would return him to full health. So it is with Israel. Because the Jewish people have the capacity for spiritual life, God prescribed food that would be conducive to their spiritual growth. With that in mind, my friends, if you follow that uh, parable, if you use that parable of a doctor coming in and telling the person who has no hope, eat whatever you want. doesn't matter. going to die anyway. Might as well enjoy your, on yourself on the way out. He turns to the other person and says, hey, you're, you've got potential. You're, you're basically healthy. So uh, I'm going to give you a strict diet. With that in mind, if we have the attitude of God doesn't care what we eat, makes no difference to him whatsoever, And he tells us, hey, eat whatever you want. That should scare us. That should scare us. If God says, hey, everything's good, eat whatever you want, what does that tell us? If we follow the the logic of the parable, it tells us, "Uh uh-oh. Eat whatever you want is a message of the physician saying you have no hope anyway. But if you have hope, I'm going to give you a diet that's going to be important to you. Rabbi Monk uh, brings down a thought here. The opening verse to chapter 11 says, El Moshe Aaron to Moses and to Aaron. So God is speaking to both Moses and uh, Aaron at the same time. For Ramban and other sages, Rabbi Monk says, the introductory words of this chapter reveal the great importance of the Torah's attach, uh, uh, excuse me, the great importance that the Torah attaches to dietary laws and laws concerning ritual purity. He says, 
Only in exceptionally important cases is the divine word revealed to Moses and Aaron at the same time. Examples are the proclamation of the the, the new uh, epoch for the Jewish people, that is, this month shall be for you in Exodus 12.2, the Passover sacrifice in Exodus 12.43, and the laws of ritual purity in Leviticus 13.1, and 15.1. So if we look at that, there's only a few places where God speaks to Moses and Aaron together, and he does that because he's introducing a subject matter of such importance that he needs to communicate it to both Moses and Aaron. And the only other times he's done that is when he's talking about the declaration of the new moon, the declaration of the Passover sacrifice, and what it means to live in ritual purity. Think about that. That's how important the laws of kosher are to God. And is very frequently than in our lives, and we're going to be talking about this more tomorrow, but as we're talking about the rest of the chapter and so on, in our minds, that the whole idea of what we eat and what we don't eat is, um, you know, is so menial to most people. They think about it, what does it matter? And this, to me, you know, I've often said, if the world is in favor of something, it's probably not godly. Most likely. Not, Not always, but most of the time. And if the same could be said, if we think that something is not important, it's probably really important to God. Because God's ways are often the complete opposite of our ways. It tends to be a universal truth. So, if we're looking, I want to take us back for a second before I highlight the connection between the tabernacle and kosher eating. But I just want to remind us of something I shared on the very first Aliyah this week. And that is what was shared, what was talked about in the uh, Keho Tumash introduction to this parasha. Talking about the reality that kosher eating, kosher living, <clears throat> because it's connected to the eighth day inauguration event of the tabernacle, when we eat kosher, we are actually partaking of the supernatural. So as, as it says here, God's division of the animal kingdom into permitted and forbidden, decreeing that certain animals defile us spiritually while others elevate us, automatically creates a part of creation that potentially opposes, uh, uh, I'm sorry, that these other um, animals that we're not supposed to eat potentially opposes divinity. The the world itself, in contrast, makes no distinction between kosher and non-kosher animals. All types of creatures form a necessary or integral part of the natural ecological order. By determining which animals are permitted, that is, which ones are conducive to divine consciousness, and which animals are forbidden, that is, they're antithetical to divine consciousness, the Torah transforms the world's natural, undifferentiated assortment of animals into a school for human refinement. In doing so, it makes the natural world supernatural. The seventh world becomes now the eighth world. That is an expression of the divine eight. So again, when we eat kosher, we are eating, we're consuming, uh, we're living by virtue of what we're eating in a divine world. Now, when we look at... um, the reality of things. I just said earlier that people 
look at food laws as something base. Why does God care? Why would he care? Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Well, as, as again, Rabbi Monk brings down here, a broader perspective, we see that the regulations regarding food played an important role at the beginning of creation. Hashem began his relationship with mankind by prohibiting the eating of forbidden fruit. If, at the beginning of the universe of, uh, universal history, he set a prohibition which had no reason other than expressing the absolute will of God, it was so that one could recognize through it what man must consider good and what he must consider evil. Mankind was told right from the start the condition for all moral life is in subordination of physical nature to the will of God. Man becomes worthy of his name by mastering the temptations of his senses. And the exercise of this self-discipline is always the first step to moral training. As I point out all the time, we have to understand that the very first commandment given the man was what he can and cannot eat. And when man violated that commandment, that's why, t- that's why we have death, it's why we have suffering. It's why we have sin. It's why we have pain in childbirth. It's why we have all of this mess that we call the world. Think about it. Because we disobeyed a food law in the very beginning, and by the way, just remind us, we were all, all of our souls are present and gone in. And so, you know, we all saw this take place. When we violated a food law as a result of our telling God, we don't care what you say, we want whatever we want to eat and we don't even care. As a result of that, we have all the bad stuff that we can't wait to get rid of when Mashiach comes. So what happens with the whole tabernacle thing? How's the connection? This is our final thing. We'll conclude with this, pick up again tomorrow. How is that connected? Well... The sages point out that the sanctuary, the whole point of the sanctuary was to bring God's presence to earth and specifically to be able to mingle and live with his people. So the sanctuary equals a return to Eden. The sanctuary equals a a restoration of what was lost with God being able to walk in the cool of the evening, so to speak, with mankind. It was it represented a, a new beginning, something dynamic. That's what was so powerful about it, that God's presence now dwelt among his people. Well, if in the beginning in Eden, when all this was happening, <clears throat> God's first commandment that he issued to Adam was about food, it makes sense then that when God establishes his new Eden, his new beginning, the very next chapter has to do with what we can and what we cannot eat. Why? Because we're going back to Eden and we're rectifying what Adam got wrong. So we see there's something intrinsically connected with a new beginning with God's presence, with paradise, and with what we eat. What we eat has everything in the world to do with God's presence in our life. Because when God's presence came to Eden to be with man, the first thing he said was, beware of what you eat. And here's what you can eat, and here's what you can't eat. Here's what you can eat, and here's what you cannot eat. 
So, our final thing for today. This, my friends, is why it is so despicable to propagate the lie that Messiah, that JC, made all foods clean. Because he is that resurrected tabernacle. He is that new beginning. He is that catalyst for bringing the Shekinah of God to earth. And the model for the Shekinah of God coming to earth and creating a new beginning was don't eat from the forbidden things. And when we say, and God forbid, that the Mashiach came and said, eat whatever you want, that is a complete perversion of the spiritual picture and a complete denial of the creation story, if you think about it. End of our Aliyah today. We will be back tomorrow to continue this discussion and dive even deeper into the uh, kosher um, laws and the kosher concepts. So blessings to you. Have a great, amazing, and wonderful day. We will look forward, with God's help, to see everybody tomorrow for the conclusion of the 6th Aliyah and into the 7th Aliyah. Shalom, shalom. Thank you.